Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solvetta. Continuous learning is the driver for success, growth, and well-being. Learn or expire. Keep your Azure skills up to date. Act now by going to solvetta.fi slash pro. Welcome back to another episode. I'm Tobias, and I'm here again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I do have a new chair in my home office. I'm not sitting in on, on, on the new chair now. I'm still using my, my old chair, which I think I got a couple of years ago. That's a fancy Herman Miller iron chair. It's super nice. But I'm using my small studio box when we do these recordings. But whenever I'm not recording or presenting, I have a slightly more airy home office upstairs. But I haven't been able to use that for a couple of months now because I do not have a chair in there. And I don't want to stand next to the table all day long. So I spent a couple of months. I went through all possible office chairs, then different models, the price ranges, the availability, shipping and handling, and everything else. I finally opted for a Secret Lab Titan Evo chair. First day in so far, I am really happy with I think you you hit the nail on its head here with uh, getting a new new chair. And because you mentioned this now, all of a sudden I'm very disappointed in my chair and I need to get a new one. I was I was actually <laughs> I've been looking now for about a year, but I haven't really had time to go out to the stores and try them out. But when you sit in a chair, you know, eight ten hours a day, it's important to get one that really works. So happy that you found something that works. Uh, let us know in about a month time if it's still as good as it feels right now. Uh, on my side, we had a water leak. So fun times ahead. The never-ending story of like house renovations and fixes continues. But this time, because I didn't really have time to go through everything, I actually hired a virtual assistant that I hired on Fiverr, you know, the freelancing site. You can get all kinds of help. And I asked them to book calls and get people to come over to do quotes for the pipe people so they can kind of come and fix the pipes. And that worked out really well. So today there's been three different companies coming over, just ringing the door saying, hey, we just want to take a look. And then they're leaving quotes. And all of this, I, I think I paid 25 bucks for someone to do like all the research on the good companies in the region and reach out to them and, and do the calling and book the times and everything. And I just let the gate open because the water leak is, is on the outside of our building. So um, really cool. I, I really hope like in, in these times of struggle for many, I really hope that Things like Fiverr and freelancing sites and stuff like that will will flourish once again uh, to really allow people to, uh, you know, earn some extra income like the virtual assistant in this case and, you know, do things that, you know, would steal too much of my attention and too much of my time during the day because I'm busying my meetings. So that's, a, you know, that's really nice. So if, if anyone is thinking about doing something like that, and I definitely recommend taking a look at, you know, getting a virtual assistant. Which, which is really just a fancy word for for someone to outsource, you know, some various tasks to. And, and as a side note, they were also used them to do some SEO optimizations for one of my websites, where they'd come in and, and say, okay, we took a look at the reports from the SEO tools you're using. Here's the top 25 things you need to fix. Here's how to do it, or we can do it for you. Uh, also 30 bucks or something like that. Something that would take me maybe a full day to do myself. So that's super cool. Um, you can contribute to, you know, their uh, personal finances is in a very good way. Um, and you can you know, kind of offload some of the things top of mind. So just making a note of that, uh, super cool. I'll probably be using that more. 
I really like this approach. I've never tried a virtual assistant. So perhaps one day in the future, our episode will sound a little bit different than when we hire two virtual assistants <laughs> to do the actual recording and, and we type up the notes or we outsource that too. Alrighty, so today we will be talking about what is the EU data boundary. And the, and the brief background for this is that in late December 2022, Microsoft announced the, the latest announcement on the EU data boundary uh, for the Microsoft Cloud. It will begin 1st of January 2023. So in essence, this means that customer data capabilities and, and such will be managed and delivered for Azure, Microsoft 365, Power Platform and Dynamics 365 within the European Union. Initial thoughts, how, how did you perceive this announcement when we got it about, about a month ago? I actually, I didn't think much about it. I, I just think it's yet again, and we've talked about this several times on the on the show here. I think it's just another step in the right direction of you know putting privacy first and making sure that we set up real regulations around data privacy and data data laws. You know, getting getting that in place, and you know, across the world, but in this case for for the European Union. But I'm I'm happy that you know Microsoft is also making their announcements on it, and like they want to uh, obviously follow this as 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 good as possible and reading the announcements you can see that there's really a lot of thoughts going into that from really smart people working with you know regulatory compliance and you know privacy aspects and things like that so so uh, not a lot of thoughts and uh, not a lot of experience with it right now because it's still pretty fresh it came out about about a month ago i think they announced it or two months now maybe so i think we'll We'll see what happens moving next, but you know, based on what they have said and what they have announced, both from Microsoft and you know, when when rolling out this EU data boundary, um, it'll be interesting to see uh, you know how they deliver on the promise. Indeed, and initially looking at all the documentation that is now available, I am a fan of Microsoft, especially in this aspect that all of the documentation that they push out, it's it's readable. It's not a 500 pager of, of law. It's more like reading Microsoft Docs or Microsoft Learn, as it's called nowadays, in understanding what is the essence of, of whatever feature or capability. And I'm thinking back to maybe 10, 15 years ago when we initially started with Azure, you would spin up a Visual Studio Online. I think it was called Visual Studio Team Services and then Visual Studio Online, if I recall correctly. You would spin up a VSO instance for a customer. And at the time when it, when it was in preview, the only location was in the US. But since you needed that capability, you didn't have GitHub yet. You really needed that. So you just had to spin it up and continue using it in hopes that one day Microsoft would grant you the option of migrating your data to the EU. And, and perhaps somebody who's based in the US, for example, now listening on this episode goes, well, what do I care if it's in the EU or not? If you think the other way around, if all of your data would be in, in the EU, let's say in Finland or Sweden or France, would that matter for you or for your customers? And that has sort of been the situation for the past decade with Azure and, and the Microsoft Cloud in, in general. Yeah, I, I really like this. And 
I think we're going to see, I think we talked in a couple of episodes ago about like the theories of, of things we haven't seen in, in the wild yet, but that, that, that are going to like flourish and that we're going to see and get more experience of. So I think just like with GDPR, when that rolled out, you know, there's a big announcement and then, you know, everyone is scrambling around trying to figure out what does it mean? How are we going to do this? How are we going to achieve it? Then we're going to see the companies, you know, start supporting this ISVs and uh, software vendors and, you know, consultancies and everything, they, they're going to have to start understanding what this means as well. So it's not just a, a new data law or something rolling out, but it's something that will impact uh, a lot of businesses. Uh, it might not be a big impact, but it's something that people need to understand when they do business. And this is a question already now that you can see, if you look online in different forums and, and different social channels, you can see when people ask questions, they're also asking, so what happens with the data? Where is the data residing? You know, what's the data sovereignty? Who owns the data? Is the data flowing to another service or to another vendor, to another cloud even? Some people are, are operating their organizations in a multi-cloud environment. How do you protect the data then? And how do you make sure that you're kind of following zero trust and also abiding by EU data boundaries in a multi-cloud environment? These things are not easy to figure out all the time. So it's it's questions I'm asking, you know, the rhetorical questions right now around this, but these are questions that will come up when you go on customer engagements. It's cost, it's questions you will hear at your big organization saying, so how do we deal with this? Uh, if you have a due diligence, if you have a review or an audit, they're going to ask you, how do you deal with this data? You're in a multi-cloud setup, a multi-cloud situation where you have three different public clouds. How do you deal with EU data boundaries and, and how do you prove that? So I, I think that's just like with GDPR, it's it's a learning curve. We're going to have to understand what this is and also have to kind of understand what the road ahead uh, looks like. So the only thing I think here is top of mind is stay as up to date as you can with the news coming out uh, around EU data boundary, but also from the announcements from Microsoft, if you work a lot with Azure to see how Azure keeps supporting um, the initiatives and everything in, in the EU data boundary. Good, good point. And why does it matter beyond the customers, obviously? It's it's because when you provision something today in, in the EU region, let's say you select West Europe or North Europe, the, the traditional locations, then you expect all of your data to be in that region, right? But in reality, it, it, it hasn't been like this. Stuff like Azure Active Directory would always have a replica in the US an identical copy of all of the data you put into Azure AD would also be in the US. So even if it's available in West Europe, you didn't really have a controlled way of configuring, please do not replicate this outside. So how I'm reading this, and I read through all of the documentation that was pushed out in early January, how I'm reading and, and sort of digesting this is that this is a commitment from Microsoft and also for privacy, but also for respecting European customers. Because if we are being brutally honest, like my Dutch friends sometimes are towards me, is that Microsoft hasn't really paid enough attention to this in the past years. They've, they've mostly gone, well, yeah, this is how it was designed, so you just have to live with that. And most customers would have no other option than to agree with this. So if we finally get this in order, I feel there's one less painful discussion with each customer ahead because you don't need to go through the finding period of figuring out where the data is. Yeah. And I think that's a good point to 
to stay relevant and, and up to date with this information is, you know, even if you deploy certain resources in a specific region, I know in the past we did some due diligence um, and, and some audits for, for various companies. And one thing that you realize is exactly these things like Azure AD, B2C, I think it was, and uh, you deploy it to a research group in West Europe, but the actual service B2C was global. And, you know, you, there were different things like that, or you used one B2C for all the customers worldwide because you couldn't split that up. And then what happens? Is it in one region or is it global? And how does that affect GDPR or in this case, EU data boundary? So I think those are, are very valid points to try and figure out like what falls in, what falls out of that. So maybe that's something we can talk about in this episode as well. Agreed. So. Just to be clear, the EU data boundary from Microsoft for the Microsoft Cloud, it's not a tool, it's not a service. For me, it's two things. It's documents and standards and audit results proving that the data will reside in the EU region, but also it will be backend engineering work for Microsoft to finally, how would you say, to finally decouple or split certain core services in Azure so that they can act uh, more independently in each region and not always rely on something perhaps in Redmond because initially that service was built there. That's that's sort of how I'm, how I'm up approaching this. And I, I also asked ChatGPT, the, uh, the AI engine for you know, writing stuff, I asked it to, you know, briefly give me eight bullet points to summarize what the EU data boundary is based on this article that they announced. And I, I you know, the first thing that came back is the EU data boundary is a set of rules that govern the transfer of personal data between the European Union and the rest of the world. All right, fair enough. Um, I'm not going to list the rest of the points because I'm not, you know, in, at this point in time, I'm not sure what's actually factually correct and what's not coming from this AI coolness. It's a really cool thing to use, but the reason I'm mentioning this is to just raise awareness of the risk of using that, because I have seen people online saying, hey, can you summarize this long article, or can you can you give me the, the five takeaways from this thing, and then it summarizes, or it builds uh, what it thinks is an understanding of the, the context. And then when I take a look at it, and I figure, well, three of the five bullet points are actually incorrect. It's summarizing it in a, you know, a very nice way. It's written very eloquently it's uh you know well written uh, very friendly readability but the fact in that summary was incorrect and that's something to be aware of because I, and the reason i'm mentioning this is i did see someone the other day say can you summarize the privacy agreement on this site and there was like whatever site and and they said hey chat gpt can you summarize the privacy agreement whatever these things something you need to take care about don't trust a, a, a text engine right now to figure that out for you. Uh, you know, get your legal or get your lawyers or, or get your compliance people involved into that. Don't offload that to the uh, chat GPT engine because I've seen that in the wild and it does not come out the right way every time. That said, it's an awesome service. I've used it for a couple of things. I've tried it out. It is super cool. Uh, it it can do really cool things. And, you know, maybe we can have a, a different episode on that and, and see how that compares to some of the stuff Microsoft is doing in the same space, but it's pretty amazing what it can do. But just keep in mind, you know, in the context of the dialogue we're having today about uh, privacy and data re regulatory compliance and EU data boundaries and things like that, don't trust the AI text engine to come back with accuracy 
because what it came back with when I did that is, you know, half-baked truth. And it, it kind of mixed things between EU data boundary and GDPR and then some other things and then created bullet points that read very well, but the facts inside of the bullet points were incorrect. Just wanted to shout that out. Super cool service, but for sensitive things, think twice before you use it. I think what they call this when the large language model-based AI engine sort of goes off the rails, it's called hallucinating. And whenever I'm now listening to consultants that I meet quite often, and I act as a consultant often with customers, whenever I'm now interacting with consultants in the future, and I sort of sense that they have zero idea what they're talking about, <laughs> I, I will mentally think, well, they're really hallucinating this, but it looks <laughs> convincing. <laughs> For Jet, uh, GPT, I tried this uh, yesterday. My sister was in a research team and they pushed out a research article and I got the link. I figured, okay, let me, let me read this, but I didn't even understand that the title of the article. So I pushed them sort of the initial introduction of the article to chat GPT and ask, can you explain this to me? Like I'm five. So the original title of the research article is in vivo image imaging of cerebral glucose metabolism informs on subacute to chronic post-stroke <laughs> tissue status. A pilot study combining PET and deuterium metabolic imaging. I have no idea what happens in here. What the service came back to me and said, this text, text is discussing a study that was conducted on mice to understand how blood flow is affected in the brain after a stroke. I'm like, okay, why didn't you write <laughs> There you go. Yeah, why didn't <laughs> yeah. you say so the first time? <laughs> <laughs> but now I also know if somebody's reading perhaps my documentation and whatever IT stuff, and if they're not working in IT, they have zero idea what I'm trying to convey through my text. Yeah. Alrighty. So what falls out of the EU data residency? So Microsoft is, is driving this model in place. And as we know, it's a complex beast because this includes all of Microsoft Cloud. So Azure M365, Power Platform, and Dynamics 365. I think LinkedIn and GitHub and whatnot, they are excluded, at least for now. So it will take time to sort of fix the historical things to fall in line with, with this new idea. And what falls out, number one, all of the old legacy Azure cloud services things. Toby, do you still recall the web roles and worker roles, all the fun stuff we had? Oh yeah, I, I do remember that. Um, well, you know, back back in the day now, when we worked with it, it was pretty modern. You know, we said, well, we have a web role, we just write code in Visual Studio, and then bam, it goes into the cloud. It only takes 11 minutes to deploy. <laughs> And you're like, okay, the system is overloaded. We need to scale up. It only takes about eight minutes to get a new instance, uh, which today is a bit ridiculous, obviously. Um, so I, I do re remember that web roles, worker roles. I worked a lot with that um, for background processing and, and things like that. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that in recent years, I have not used a single old or classic Azure Cloud service. Same, same for me. I recall that the first incarnation of those was something you could deploy locally with a, with a setup file. And if you needed to scale the instances, you would have an XML file, you would modify that with Notepad instances 
equals five, and it would just spin up five processes. Mm. It was pretty convenient at the time, but looking back to that from now, obviously not. So that falls out, but I would expect it to fall out because the whole classic Azure thing should be forgotten already. Then a couple of other ones, Azure Machine Learning, uh, Azure Data Explorer, they are more distributed, non-location tied services. Azure Serial Console for VMs, when you really need to get the, the virtual serial console access if the operating system doesn't reboot. Some previews, some beta capabilities, language understanding, Azure Databricks. Stuff like this is not in scope of the EU data residency. But what is in scope, but it's not compliant now, is what we already mentioned, Azure Active Directory. So I take from the documents and sort of trying to read between the lines that it requires quite a bit of re-architecting to make Azure AD not reliant on whatever replicas it has in the US. Any any thoughts on this or any of the other services? No, not really. I think this is, I mean, the long list of things you just said, it's not something that I will keep in mind probably. It's, I, I will... Like I, like we said in the beginning of this episode, this is something you have to stay up to date with. You have to take a look at the Microsoft documentation, like what is supported, what's not supported, and what are regional services, what are non-regional services, you know, and what which one of them are currently supporting this uh, EU data residency and, and AID, EU data boundaries. So I think, you know, from my point of view, that's that's the takeaway I will always have stay relevant, use the latest updates, the latest documentation, because this will change. And I'm pretty pretty confident that there are going to be changes to some of these you know, services that are today global, where they say, well, now you have a choice to you know, opt in the traffic law, or now you have a choice to do X and Y with it uh, in order to support these you know, ever-increasing regulatory compliance and, and data laws that we're seeing flourishing you know, all over the world. So I don't think this is a special case for that. Uh, if if I had to imagine, I would say that there is an ongoing effort or exploratory phase where companies worldwide, including Microsoft, uh, for, for their Azure Cloud, um, are doing research on how can we better make our global services or services that is running PII through a specific region today, how can we make that more compliant with data regulatory uh, laws and, and things like that. So I think we're going to see some you know, announcements in the coming years around things like that, not just for this specific instance of uh, a data law, but for everything. So I, I don't have specific thoughts and specific services here, because again, like when you're architecting something, when you're building something, when you're making decisions, you know, for your cloud strategies, keep this in mind, but always, always, always use the latest documentation. So if you listen to this podcast in, in half a year or a year from now, don't trust the list of services we just said. Half of them could have support, might not have, we don't know. So always trust the, the source, which is the, the documentation from Microsoft. Make sure that you, you have a, an updated understanding of what's included, what's not included, what services or uh, you know, global uh, resources support you know, the various initiatives. So that's, that's my takeaway on that. You know, just make sure you stay updated with the, the public sources of information for things like this because this is it's important stuff to figure out the right way one one of the perks if you run your own company like i do is that you can invent new fancy job titles i'm i'm sort of thinking to 
perhaps become the chief EU data boundary officer, just to keep on track on, on what's happening with this. So, so there's a bunch of documentation, uh, at least one white paper, we'll, we'll add the links in the show notes, that have been pushed out. But when you start opening those, those web pages and documents, they keep linking to other resources, and suddenly you have like 20 tabs open. And at some point you start going in circles, but you sort of need to have a peek at all of those to, to form a sort of full understanding on, on, on what's at play here. A couple of other non-regional services, Defender for Cloud, Azure Traffic Manager, Azure DNS, and so on, not that relevant because if you opt to use Azure DNS, you typically do not store sensitive information in a public DNS and you expect DNS to work globally, and you expect it to be resilient and, 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 and to have geo-redundancy. Some other things to consider, disaster recovery obviously is one. If you have a service in Azure, you do a disaster recovery setup from, let's say, West Europe to the US, well, obviously the EU data residency is not at play anymore. If you have such an architecture already, or you rely on some capabilities of that, you need to plan ahead for whatever impending changes might be happening with the EU data boundary and possibly with the services so that it fits your current or future vision on how you want to run the services in future. Other things to consider, some special cases, perhaps the data needs to be in a specific country, I sometimes hear this from companies in Finland that, yes, we would like to employ Azure, but all data needs to be in Finland. Well, that's not really possible, at least not yet, unless we have Finland Central in a couple of years, hopefully. Well, maybe we can live with West Europe, which is in the Netherlands, or Sweden Central. Okay, let's go for that. Or another special case, data cannot go to the US, but now we have to sort of go through what services we're planning on using, what data we're storing in there, and what is the EU data residency policy for all of those given services. So this is this is more like non-technical work when you when you do this detective work, but you also need to understand what services you're using and what data you're storing in those services to understand what things to consider, if any consideration is needed. Yeah, I, I think this is a it's a good opportunity to highlight these discussions also with GDPR and and you know all the other different cloud acts that we have. These are things that needs to be highlighted in the like cloud adoption journey if you're migrating to the cloud or if you're already in the cloud in a big organization. You know, th this is something that usually goes to you know to the executive board where you have to make decisions about trade-offs as well because let's face it there's going to be trade-offs. If you say we are already up, we're an enterprise, we're operating in 25 countries or five countries, or it doesn't matter. And we now need to support this. You know, in your existing infrastructure, that might mean you would have to kind of replace 40% of your infrastructure in the cloud just to support, you know, shifting everything in, in a different way. That's not going to work. Companies are not going to be able to do that. So it's always going to be a trade-off as well, like how and where can we do this and what are... It's it's not also about just not doing it or uh, having a boundary of the information, but I think also if with like with GDPR, it's okay to store personal data. It's not about not storing it; it's about protecting it. 
So it, it's not about not storing it or not shipping it outside of the US or outside of Europe, because how would you build a website where you sign in uh, with your email address, for example, if you're coming from the US? Well, you have to store it somewhere. You have to transact that. That has to be shipped to the US. If the user is there, that's going to flow over the wire. So, I mean, uh, using GDPR and also the EU data boundaries, you still have very valid cases for storing and transacting personal information. It's just about how we do it and how we protect it. So these things are, you know, oftentimes you bring it up to the uh, decision board or the leadership team or the executive board, you know, whatever type of organization you're in. And then you have to figure out, you know, do we need our compliance managers on this? Probably. Do we need legal? Probably. Do we need to have, you know, policy advice from uh, people who build our corporate policies internally? Yeah, probably. So there's a lot of people usually involved in these things. So uh, again, coming back to the fact that this is not something you, like you mentioned, it's not a technical thing, right? This is this is process. This is documentation. It's process. It's about auditing. And I've done audits in my past, and I've also been part of ensuring that our audits get passed um, in, in various companies. And a single truth to all of those experiences is it's never one individual or one team that can pull this off. You know, you have to have buy in the entire company or in the entire line uh, across the company where all your teams collaborate. It's like what we usually say with security being a shared responsibility where not just the security team or not just the, the head of security can ensure everything is secure at your company or your chief security officer or your CISO. They can figure everything out. They can drive the work. They can lead the work. They can and pointed in the right direction, but everyone needs to be, you know, understand what what's required from from everyone. And the same thing applies here. There's a lot of teams involved, and I think we can talk to great lengths about this, of course. But just by my experiences, take this to the right level for discuss <clears throat> for discussions. It's not something two architects sit and discuss and say, "Hey, I think we can figure this out by deploying here or there," because you you need to consider all the implications if that decision is not the right one, uh, but also the implications if you made a decision that now shifts the focus or you redeploy resources and whatever, that's going to cost you quite a bit. What if the legal department comes back or the compliance officer says, well, we didn't have to do that because according to the regulatory compliance of this new law, it means that we can actually do that with a valid business case, which we have you know, under these circumstances. So it's never as easy as it is as reading an announcement saying, hey, this is how it works. So again, I love compliance, worked a lot with it, uh, auditing, stuff like this. It's super cool auditing companies, but it is tricky. It is a, a pretty tough thing to navigate. So just want to keep that top of mind. If you ever end up working with these things, make sure you have the right information at the right time. Make sure you have the right people involved as well to understand the bigger picture not just deploying to one region or the other, but what implications are there? When can we deploy to multi-regions? When is it okay to ship the data to a different country? Does it need to be encrypted? And if so, how? How do we protect it? Is that enough? There's a lot of questions to answer. So just my, you know, from the top of head, some some thoughts on that. Been going through some of these things uh, with some companies in the past with, with different other laws and, and other regulatory compliances. Just keep in mind, it's it's not easy. It is a landscape you need to navigate. Not impossible, but yeah, stay up to date. It's the most important thing.
Yeah, this is definitely a theme for, for this year to stay up to date on the EU data boundary. Thankfully, Microsoft is promising updates on the process as they go. I'm I'm not envisioning that that we are getting some fancy dashboards for figuring out where the data goes, but at least we have a documentation and the white papers to follow up on, on, on what's happening. And perhaps keeping in mind on all of the options here, and whenever you work with a customer or in your own environment, to start mentally mapping sort of what goes where and is there something we need to be on top of beyond just having the data sit in the cloud. All righty. Uh, I think this was all we had for the EU data boundary. The last bit uh, that we traditionally have in each episode is the unexpected question. Toby, I will be asking you, are you ready? All right, let's go. What's the best comfort food? Something you would cook yourself or perhaps order as takeaway when it's you know a slow weekend, you have a good movie waiting in Netflix and you have plenty of time. So number one, I cannot answer that with a single question and uh, with a single answer to this question because I, I would not cook what I take out. So that I will have two different answers there. And the other point is it's never a slow weekend with a, you know two kids at home. It, I don't have those weekends that you talk about where you just relax and watch <laughs> Netflix. But if I ever do get them again, um, I would say my first answer, if it's a takeaway, I would probably say some good Chinese or Thai is what I really like. Uh, where you have some of those fried shrimps and, and fried uh, chickens and whatever it is, and, and then all the wook and all this stuff. I don't even know what goes in it, but it is so good. And we, we used to visit Thailand. I've been there a couple of times, and the food is just amazing. And I'm very lucky to have a lot of Thai and Chinese places in, in the city that I live. So the options are plenty. I love it. If it's home-cooked, however, I think I really enjoy making my homemade pizza with uh, like a 24-hour yeast process for the dough. And then like the uh, Napolitan, Napolitan, how do you say that in English? The Napolitan? Uh, Na Naples. The Naples way. Yes. <laughs> the way, the yes. way they do it in Naples. Yeah, um, exactly. And, you know, that, you know, the dough sits for 24, even 48 hours sometimes. Then you bake it on this stone uh, piece that I have on my grill. So I have a Vivor gas grill, but I put the, the pizza stone on there and it's it's amazing it's like a nice process you you can take your time doing it obviously you don't sit and wait for it 24 hours you you make the dough a couple of days ahead and then you use it whenever you need it and then you make these really great italian pizzas uh super nice with some buffalo mozzarella some good cherry tomatoes some really good ham that also comes from italy the tomatoes the buffalo mozzarella and like everything that goes on that pizza is from italy where yeah, I've spent a lot of time in Italy as well. So two of my favorite places, Thailand and Italy. Those are my final choices. Sounds really delicious. I'm I'm taking some hints for the upcoming weekend to figure out <laughs> what what to eat. And, and no, it's it's not a slow weekend here either with the kids, but it's gradually getting easier and easier when the kids get older. And now I can at least utilize the older kids to actually prep some bits of the food. And it it makes it all the much easier. Alrighty, thank you again for tuning in. We'll have a fresh episode for you again next week on Wednesday. Bye-bye. See you then.